0: Hello and welcome to the Business Class Lounge, the podcast where I interview marketing leaders and executives to understand how they really think about leadership, management, finance and more. This is a podcast from Searchpilot. My name is Will Critchlow. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking to Kieran Flanagan. Kieran started out in SEO moved to HubSpot where he's done many things, including being part of founding HubSpot's international business, and at times leading a 200-person strong team. He's now the Senior Vice President of Marketing there, and he's exactly the kind of person I want to be bringing on this podcast, because he has all of that experience, from hands-on in the channel through to executive leadership, and reporting right to the top of a large and successful organisation. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Karen. Thanks for joining me.
1: Hey, excited to be here, Will.
0: I'm uh, looking forward to this conversation. We've kind of known each other mainly on the internet for a long time, <laughs> and I am very excited to hear more about your journey, kind of through to obviously now, a very senior marketing role. And what I want to do with these kind of conversations is just hear a little bit about that journey, hear about what got you to where you are, and also understand some of what makes your job interesting and exciting now. and There's all kind of bits and pieces that I'm hoping to learn as we go along, but I also just, yeah, have an interesting conversation out of it. So place I thought I'd start is you're obviously in a position of leadership now within marketing, and I know you're an old hand at podcasts. I've listened to some of the podcasts that you've led and appeared on, so I know you have opinions about this. What does it mean for you to move into leadership in marketing, and what's your leadership philosophy, if you'd like?
1: Yeah, so I think like kind of over the past a number of years, I've started as a team of one, built teams, went back to a team of one, built teams, all actually within the same company. What's interesting has, you know, HubSpot's kind of allowed me to do a lot of different things every kind of two to two and a half years and went from small teams to managing over 200 people. And so like you have to kind of really stretch yourself. In terms of leadership, I think one of the interesting things is like people think leadership and management are the same thing, and they really aren't. Like you can actually be an incredible manager and not be a really great leader. And that could be okay for certain teams or certain roles that you're doing. And you can actually be an incredible leader and, and manage no people. And so for me, leadership is like having clear mission, having something like people can galvanize around, I think for the most part, you want to be someone that can kind of rally your team around a mission that actually really matters. And so anytime that I've done something HubSpot. I've tried to make sure that it's something worthwhile, something that people can really get excited and motivated by. I think you want to make sure that you kind of empower your team to do their best work. So I've always kind of believed, you know, when you get into tech, everyone tells you to hire A-plus talent. Oh, that's the, mm-hmm. the only way we can really be successful is like, you know, keep it high, only hire A-plus talent. And the sentiment behind that is like, correct, right? Like, if you have the best talent, you likely will win, but... If you actually just kind of logically think about how much A-plus talent is there in the world and how many companies are trying to hire like A-plus talent, what I think is more important is trying to build an A-plus culture, right? If you can actually take people, coach them, and have a culture where they can do the best work, you're going to actually kind of have you know a, a bunch of people that become A-plus within your team. And for me, the best part about my role is seeing people that I've managed go on to do CMO roles. Like that to me is like how i measure my success is really is really what do the people that i've brought on go do next after hubspot and so leadership for me is like having a good clear mission having people that you can galvanize around that mission giving your team a great environment to do a really incredible work and allowing them to be autonomous and kind of a, and try to achieve that work and i'll kind of stop there there's a bunch of other things but you know i think that's the kind of top line in terms of how I think about it
0: i love that direction and just to get it really concrete then so you said you, you had the opportunity to reinvent this role a few times over in HubSpot, but either through that journey or in what you're doing now, how have you taken HubSpot's big mission, right, the, the whole company size mission, which I think has been really compelling to a lot of folks who work there, and we're customers, we, we spend for our size quite a lot of money with HubSpot, big fans of the platform. How have you taken that big picture mission and made it particularly meaningful to your team specifically?
1: I think this is interesting. So the you know a lot of the people who joined HubSpot early, and I was in that group, were real believers of like this inbound transformational story. And so, you know, you, HubSpot did a really incredible job of creating tribes. And so, it had a tribe of people who belonged in the inbound transformational story. And this is the new way to do marketing. I can get into a little bit more detail of that if it's interesting. And then you had all of these kind of people that were doing marketing in the traditional way, and were kind of feeling a little bit emotional about that change. Like they did not want that change. This is not how they identify themselves and doing the things that work today, not in the things that work in the future. And so I think there was a real crew of us who joined, who wanted to paint marketing in a better light. And so HubSpot mission has always been to help millions of businesses grow. Like we want to help the kind of small businesses, the mid-sized businesses, have a tech stack that never historically would be able to afford that. Now they actually have all the tools they need to be successful. I think how we kind of distill that down into the team's mission is like you have the overarching company mission, which everyone should believe in. Like if you join a company, you should really believe in that company's mission because it, the job will be a lot more fun. Right. And I think that's one of the things that I always tell people is, you know, you can leave HubSpot and go do a variety of things. Just make sure you do something that matters to you. Because I think that's where you actually start to really enjoy the role. And we kind of distill that mission down into, okay, like how do we ladder up to helping millions of businesses grow? And I'll give you a tangible example. I led the acquisition of a media company called The Hustle. Mm -hmm. And we created this like real media org within HubSpot. It's about 80 people now. We have this whole kind of business media network. And that really is like, how do we aspire and educate business builders and business builders for us or anyone who's helping To build a business and help that business grow and we want to be the kind of source of information for educating and inspiring those business builders and so that's like how one team ladders up to the overarching company mission and so every team has some you know slice of that mission within how they think about their own roles within how they think about their own goals
0: yeah and i love what you're doing building that media organization along with the acquisitions I think the other one that's really stood out to me was uh, ProfitWell, who recently acquired by Parnell as well. Just phenomenal. Kind of, yeah, B2B, SaaS.
1: Yeah, Patrick's awesome.
0: And yet somehow make a, a genuinely interesting, engaging media organization within that. Yeah. I found that really fascinating to watch.
1: And I think actually Patrick did a really incredible job because, you know, for HubSpot, we have a broad variety of things we can create content around because we're targeting front office workers, whereas uh, mm-hmm. you know he was targeting and Profitable were targeting like churn, yeah. right? Like subscription revenue. So and, specific. Yeah, and so it's very specific yeah. and you know hard to kind of create things that are you know engaging, informative, and they just did an incredible job of doing that. Yeah. So they, they're definitely one of the SaaS brands that have done an amazing job at building out media.
0: Yeah, for sure. And as we are speaking about people, I mean, I mentioned before, you've been on podcasts, you've hosted your own podcast, so you should definitely plug that as well. But one of the things I'm kind of always curious about is the dynamic among the leadership group. So you actually host a podcast with your boss. Yep. And yeah, so A, can you tell me a little bit about that? I'd love to hear about how that dynamic plays out. But also, how do you two think about your, your individual priorities? And, you know, what's, his job, what's your job? How do you divide up those? those Yeah, like
1: I was thinking about this a lot recently, um, like moving around companies to build careers versus staying within one company to build career. And I think one of the reasons you end up leaving company is really you just want to see new problems and have a different mission. And I I was kind of going through, there was um, the CMO at Starbucks had come up, like started their career in Starbucks and had moved into different departments every kind of two years and then ended up becoming the CMO of Starbucks over like a, a 15 year period. And there's another really good example. When I was in Salesforce, there's an incredible leader called George Hu. He went on to become the kind of CEO of Twilio, which is an amazing company. Oh yeah. And I remember when when I was in Salesforce, like there was this narrative that, you know, he was kind of this incredible person that Mark Benioff was moving around the company and just getting in to see different things and different problems, you know, prepping him to become the kind of future CEO of, uh, or C- I think he became a CEO of Salesforce and then CEO of Twilio, but learn all those skills within Salesforce. Yep. And so there's this thing where I think the way I think about my career is like, am I seeing new problems? Am I trying to solve hard things? And so in terms of coming back to that question, I've kind of changed what I do every kind of two to two and a half years. Now I've always kind of reported into Kip and that's part of the reason I have liked being at HubSpot because we have such a great relationship. And then I have like dotted lines and different people when I'm, when I was building international dotted line into the MD of international, when I was building PLG dotted line into Brian Halligan, who is co-founder of HubSpot. And so what's the dynamic between Kip and I? Like Kip, you know, owns the overall kind of marketing strategy. Actually, HubSpot marketing is very like core to the business. So like much more like a kind of business leader slash marketeer. And then whatever the mission I'm taking on, we distill that into like clear goals, clear things that me and the group are accountable to and report that back up to Kip. And so, you know, over time, one of the cool things about being in a company that's had the journey like HubSpot is you kind of start that journey with someone and you kind of go through that together and you just it's what people don't really realize if you've kind of gone through you know a couple of iterations of that like i joined when hubspot was 300 people were wow. over you know six seven thousand now sure. it's the actual stories you get to tell you know you, you've seen so many kind of hard times and challenging times and it's you know i think the payout is like the stories you can tell each other like when you get to meet up and the kind of journey you've been on and i think that's one of the kind of special things that some of us who are still in HubSpot, you know, have together as like being on that journey.
0: That's probably a good story. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was about some of those stories, you know, like, is there anything really memorable that you come back to or that becomes part of that folklore, whether it's incredible outcomes, great team stuff, or yeah, disasters, disasters averted. Yeah. Tell us the story
1: there's been a good few times so like you know when we started international there was 17 or so of us opened up the office first opposite side of cambridge like that was a really exciting time because it felt like a startup and the way hubspot works is marketing and are accountable to revenue which is the thing i love about hubspot because you feel like you're a core part of like business revenue business yeah. metrics and so if marketing missed our numbers sales will start missing the numbers a number of weeks or months afterwards and i remember when we were building an international G two is who's a great person a good friend now you know but even though you become friendly with people like he sat me down and goes look you guys are missing your number i had to build pipeline for international and um what was really interesting was like we missed our number for a couple of weeks and then it started to like propagate that narrative was all over the sales floor and then like it becomes this like really acute problem because we were still a small enough group i think maybe we had grown from 17 to a couple of hundred but like there was like okay well Sales don't feel empowered because they don't have the amount of demand they need to hit their revenue. Yeah. It kind of was like first example, of like we have to solve problems very rapidly in a very fast growth company, because if you don't do that, the mood shifts very, very fast. When I was building a product-led growth uh, kind of motion, so like we kind of shifted the business to be more product-led growth, we kind of incubated that again as a startup within HubSpot. So HubSpot approached it in a really interesting way where they give a group of us like, hey, go build product-led products you don't have to worry about anything about the core company, they're not going to ask you to do anything. Think of yourself as a startup and about 15 to 20 of us started in in that journey. And one of the interesting things about that was learning. So international had gone really well for me, I like build 9x pipeline. And then for the first six months in that PLG business, I missed my numbers. And I actually had weekly one on ones with Brian Halligan, who's co founder of HubSpot, like he was kind of down the line, big deal. And every time I was like, I'm definitely going to get fired. So it like really forces you to like dig deep within your soul and and try to build that self-confidence that you can kind of dig your way out of this. Because I, I don't going to end, but one thing. So I think one of the things you have to learn as leader is like, you know, radical candor in terms of positivity and negativity. I think people think radical candor is like, I have to give you direct harsh feedback, right? That's what radical candor is. Yeah. Radical candor is actually, I need to give you direct, you know, Positive feedback, like, how do I actually make sure that you know you're doing a good job? Now, one of the things I will say is that as you go further up the totem pole in terms of seniority, that positive feedback becomes less and less, you just have to, you have to, to yeah, Yeah. you have to get that from within yourself, right? You Mm -hmm. have to build that confidence within yourself that you can get yourself out of certain situations. And I think that's one of the things I learned. That was probably one of my favorite times when HubSpot was building the product like growth, great set of people, really felt like a startup, like incubated from the core business. And then the other one was leading the acquisition of the hustle, because I never thought I would get to do like an M&A deal. And that was a whole other slew of different problems that I hadn't seen before and hadn't thought about before.
0: Yeah, fascinating. I, I didn't actually know you'd led that really interesting deal. And that time, the PLG bit, where you were, you know, you're meeting with Brian, you sounds like literally saying to him, Brian, at what point do you fire me in this whole, whole process? <laughs> what was he like through that did you feel supported kind of i guess on that emotional side you know the you know you've got this and or was he kind of tactically useful or was he just saying look you have to solve this and i'm going to keep meeting with you until you come to me with a solution
1: yeah so like brian's an incredible person so first of all his job wasn't to like manage me or give me tactical advice his job Mm -hmm. was he wanted to be the GM of the product-led business for the first year or a little more than that to make sure it really worked. Yep. So it was like this kind of new S-curve for HubSpot and how we would actually kind of break the tyranny of connection between revenue and like how could we move into a much more product-led orientated world. Mm-hmm. And so my accountability to him was like to deliver him what he needed, right? Rather than me kind of go to him for, you know, how do I actually solve these problems? I think that he he was very supportive of the overall group like that was a really great group of people and give us time to work through problems but also i always loved that brian he didn't mix words and give you a sense of urgency like when things needed to be fixed like go fix them right that's what you're paid to do and i i respect that and i think sometimes that gets lost in companies today where everyone is i I think there's like a a world of where you need to be empathetic but you need to have empathetic accountability yeah i empathize with this but at the end of the day you kind of have to like solve it it's somewhat on you but Hotspot is a very supportive place. There's lots of other places where I can get support. But again, you have to like, do your job, right? I think it's kind of on you to solve. At the end of the day. Yeah. yeah. And so one of the things I did learn that probably is interesting for your listeners is what is the one mistake I made during that period that I Ooh. learned from and never made again? Definitely want to hear that. We would have this meeting where like, we would all get together, the founders and the execs, and we would present how things were going. And there's like a famous presentation I did. I think they coined it like the Death March. And so I don't know if you spent much time with like, you know, Irish people sometimes lean on like pessimism, like how can this (laughs) go wrong? Like what are all the ways that this could potentially go wrong? And like Americans are obviously much more on like, what are all the ways that this can go right? Or like how are we going to rule the world? And yeah, and I love that. That's why I love working with American companies because it actually gets me, you know, thinking I try to like live in the middle, Mm -hmm. you know, I kind of have the right kind of degree of pessimism, like what could go wrong, but actually like, what are all the opportunities that we have available to us? And so I remember this presentation and like things were going really wrong. And one of the things I am good at is like, I can clearly see all of the problems. Like I'm able to distill down problems and frame them up. And I went into this and I was like, this is a problem. This is a problem. This is a problem. This is a problem. And I made the like very like basic rudimentary mistake of like not having the solutions. Right.
0: Right. In this high profile meeting.
1: Yeah. Founders. Yeah. And, I, and so one of the execs, I remember clearly, and uh, I can't remember if I was in Zoom or not, because at that time, the other difficult thing, I was the only person doing the exact like, kind of like that role from not Boston. So they're
0: all sitting there in a room, kind of looking at each other, yeah. like, what is this guy doing?
1: Uh, yeah. I can't remember how Zoomer was in the room because I was flying back and forth to Boston every four to five weeks. And so I yeah. was there for some and not there for others. And I remember one of the guys going, Well, that was the most utterly depressed in 45 minutes of my life. <laughs> and, I was, <laughs> and I was like, Okay, well, I don't necessarily need to know if I failed that or not. And I, I remember, like, Brian used to give me good feedback. I was like, How did you think that presentation went? Did that make sense? He goes, Well, I didn't really remember it so it means you didn't totally screw it up but also you didn't make out great impression i love feedback like
0: that that. it's fascinatingly honest feedback isn't it yeah Yeah. that's what
1: you need it just that gets Mm. lost sometimes in the kind of world we live where people don't want that kind of feedback but you don't grow unless you get that feedback it's just how it's delivered you can deliver something like that without being an asshole yeah and i think that's what people misunderstand yeah
0: yeah no that's all really fascinating you must have spent far too much time in Boston Logan, um, We, as you know, run conferences yeah, there. Yeah,
1: so. yeah, yeah. I had to get a visa because I manage so many mm. people out there, and I, I tried to count the amount of trips when I was doing it. It was like 65
0: trips. <laughs> I hate that question. I did the, um, what's it called, global entry. And, you know, they ask, what countries have you been to in the last five years? And, like, it's easy to get the top 80 or 90%, and then you're like, yeah. wait, Where else have, have I, I been? been to Switzerland? I, I don't remember if I've been to Switzerland <laughs> in the last five years. Um, so, anyway, let's do a little bit on SEO. Obviously, that's my background. Yep. And I know it's something you know an awful lot about, but you're in a more generalist role these days. Who's the most senior person with an SEO title in your team?
1: So we have a, a woman called Asia Frost, who's awesome. I think she's director, uh, user acquisition. Actually, she's not. she hasn't got an SEO title. She's incredible at search. Probably like a senior manager. I don't think mm-hmm. we have a director of search, but we have someone who's a director who kind of manages the search team and has incredible knowledge of search.
0: Yeah. How does that roll up, whether it's into you or into other bits of the marketing world?
1: Yeah. So we have a customer acquisition team who are responsible for all of the demand we generate across leads and users globally. And that's run by a woman called Emmy. And Asia rolls up to Emmy, which is like the search team. Search has a really interesting history at HubSpot. So I was like, arguing with these other two guys whose advice for like early stage startups is to, you know, rank for really niche keywords that convert and like obsess over yeah. those keywords just like HubSpot has done, right? Like, just like HubSpot did. HubSpot didn't have a single person doing search in the first five or six years. Mm -hmm. No one, like, really doing SEO. We really focused on, like, content for buyer personas and never really thought how it would actually rank for certain keywords. Now, that was quite new for a B2B company to be creating the amount of content that we were creating and doing the things we were doing. So it actually did really well. Yeah. And then we started building search. You probably, like our first search hire, you probably, you would know him because he's incredible. Like Matt Barbie was our first yeah. search hire. And like Matt brought in an incredible amount of rigor and started to like build out our search capabilities. Mm. And he went on to do amazing things. And that's when we started to first invest in search. It was a really great investment. I think we got to like one to 2 million visits a month through our blogs. And we do a multitude of other things. And then since we integrated search, we're at like 12 to 15 million. So obviously it helped us like, really accelerate and we've kind of really systemized that but like i think if you're an early stage company i think you're better going broader and trying to win more shared voice within your audience than just like focused on very transactional keywords that everyone else is actually focused
0: on yeah yeah i mean glad to agree actually i think also with the evolution of the way google is moving in particular and search of behavior to a very large degree i kind of think there isn't even a tactical way that you would just focus on yeah you know, the transactional keywords. Yeah,
1: like, you, you wouldn't rank for them.
0: Yeah, what's the mechanism? How do you yeah. achieve that? And especially well, with any kind of long-term sustainable brand building approach, I, I don't know how you'd even try to do that. Yeah. I think Matt, instantly is, is somebody who's gone on to be a CMO, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, he's a CMO at uh, Decentral Games, and mm. uh, everyone knows Matt, like he's an incredible person. And again, the best thing on this stuff is like the people you get to work with. If you're in a really great company, you can attract incredible people and just like, the fun you can have working with incredible people, it beats anything else.
0: Yeah, definitely. And so I don't know whether this falls exactly in your email, but I'm particularly interested in how companies at the scale that you've got to now with the, those results and the size of team, how do you think about accountability for organic search in particular, for the SEO team in particular? What are they held accountable to yeah, in the short term and over the longer term? How do you think about that?
1: So search is really held accountable to metrics in, collaboration with other teams. So mm-hmm. if I go through one of our more famous kind of ways that we've built our models is through the blog things that we've done. So the search team, it's really well systemized. Like the systems that we've created on how we create content from a search first perspective are actually really, really good. And so I'll give you an example from the blog. So the search team basically create the editorial calendar. So each and every quarter, they create an editorial calendar for our blogging team. Okay. Now, the interesting learning there is when we were trying to figure out is that a good thing to do or not? And I was like, should we align those things with the blog team? How will the blog teams feel about it? Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, they may hate this because it's going to kill their creativity. Actually, they love it because it gives them an editorial calendar of articles that they can work from. So it's not prescriptive and like write this word, write this keyword, anything like that. Sure. It's like, here is what the audience is searching for. Here's some great options for titles. This is the amount of search traffic available mm-hmm. for this title. And we also get into like, does this article need imagery, doesn't need video because we analyze the results. And so it gives them this whole editorial calendar that they can actually start to create content around. Within that editorial calendar is the monthly available search volume for all of the content we're going to create. So every quarter we can see how much available search traffic we are going to create content around and we keep track of that. So they're accountable to like growth of demand from the blogs, like organic growth in collaboration with the blogging team. They also have this incredible system where they can look for content that has fallen in traffic and they analyze search pages to see why it's fallen in traffic. And then they go back in and add in additional things for editors and the content creators to like refresh those posts. That's actually been one of the biggest things that have helped us grow traffic. We do more updates than that you posts, which people probably don't realize.
0: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, but I'm sure that it's not completely intuitive. I don't know what you do in terms of content pruning and getting rid of some old content, yep. but with the volume you put out there, you must have some stuff that doesn't deserve an update, but it also doesn't deserve to exist, really.
1: Yeah, so we have like a search team that's very content-focused. We have a technical search team that are much more in like pruning, architecture. They actually work a lot with our product team as well because we run everything off HubSpot. Yep. So sometimes there's things we want to do from a technical perspective that we actually have to build into the product. And so they work a lot with the product team. Then there's like the search team work across... Like we have so many things. So like we have an academy where we create courses. And so they collaborate with the academy team in terms of the courses that we create that would generate search traffic. There's just like a range of things. And so the search goals are usually tied in with another team. And they're all kind of around how we create demand through that medium and search. YouTube is another one where they start to build out like editorial calendars based upon YouTube search. And so things like that.
0: I like that kind of healthy sounding collaboration between the blogging team, content team and the SEO team sounds like and i expect if you can get it right you have that content team really valuing the fact that they know they're working on valuable content right they know there is demand for this stuff because somebody has been able to put that effort in do that hard work to present to them look this is what that search volume looks like this is what the audience wants to hear about right Uh, yeah i can definitely see that working late as long as there's enough trust between those teams
1: and like the history there is we had been stagnant for 12 months and so we when i was working on the plg the core business. The growth had kind of like tapped out we had been yep. kind of stagnant we hadn't been growing we had plateaued for 11 odd months and then we were like okay we're going to make some big changes here and integrate search into everything and make search part of how we actually figure out what content to create and that actually helped to drive growth and really accelerated growth. So everyone started to win and we made sure that everyone shared in those wins. And so when people feel like they're winning, you know, I think people are happy. Like everyone kind of wants to have success.
0: Winning solves a lot of things, doesn't it? It, Yeah. It goes very closely hand in hand with what you were saying earlier about being on great teams. I think you know there's obviously a lot of similarity between being on a great team and a winning team. Right. But if you can get in that intersection, then it's a ton of fun, isn't it? Being surrounded by great people yeah. and getting that excitement of those results coming in.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the times you enjoy your work most, for sure.
0: Mm. little pivot then into how you think about some of those initiatives and budgets. And this is another one of those things I'm kind of interested about, because I've been a consultant from the outside, oftentimes pitching <laughs> for those budgets, but haven't been the kind of person inside signing off on those things. How do you think about it when somebody maybe comes from inside your team, for example, Somebody comes to you with a a substantial proposal, right? You know, I think we should do this thing. Oh, they've done a lot of legwork. They've got the whole business case for it, but it's a you know six figure plus investment, and it needs to really be very valuable if it's going to be something that you're going to sign off on. How do you think about that, and how does it sit within your domain of influence versus being signed off elsewhere in the organization?
1: Yeah. The way that we work is uh, every year we kind of, we do add our models. And so we do, it's way more complex than just today, but like there's a top-down model from the company, which is basically how much revenue does the company need to generate? And we can actually back that into the amount of demand. Not all my teams are creating like demand, but for the ones that create demands, it's much easier in budget. I can get into the ones that it's harder to like correlate their spend to like exact demand metrics. Yep. But for people who are kind of creating demand, you have the top down model, hey, what does a company need to generate in terms of revenue, you have your drag to spreadsheet model, which is hey, we just dragged a spreadsheet based upon historical trends, here is what we're going to actually be you have these gaps, and then you have a model which is basically drag the spreadsheet, but the added investment, like where's the upside?
0: If we do these things.
1: Yeah. do this, yeah. get this budget, this headcount, then we can make certain swings across these things and start to close that gap. So there's this gap closing exercise. So we kind of know what we're going to spend the money on within a given year. Now, if someone says, hey, like we have this incredible opportunity to build this tool, it's going to cost $500,000. Then what you would expect to have is like a clear problem statement, how the tool is going to generate demand. We'll build a forecast model. One well, of my teams actually did this very recently. Build a forecast model, which is a three-year forecast model. And you can look to see when your payback is in that 500000 and then when you're in profit. Most of the things we'll spend money on in that way are evergreen things. You know, they're usually things that are going to generate recurrent demand for us. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, you've paid back your expense and then you're just in profit. For the things that are less easier to manage, like they, it's hard to build a forecast model. Maybe it's like, we want to launch a new podcast. Which is going to cost a lot of money because we're going to have an influencer. We want to launch a new YouTube channel, which is much more about influence and perception versus distribution. It's the business case and then how it fits into the overall goals that we've set for that year. And is it actually like, is it an accelerant of those goals? Mm -hmm. And the team, for the most part, have a budget and we give them quite a lot of autonomy on how to spend that budget other than things that are like very ring-fenced, right? Like all of the paid advertising things, very ring-fenced. Like there's certain things that are ring-fenced because they're baked into the demand model. And then there's some things that will have more flexibility and that you can kind of decide to spend that on what you think is the best thing to spend it on.
0: Mm, Yeah, that all makes sense. I think the payback element side of things is a really interesting one because you're aggregating a whole load of different levers, different assumptions and estimates of you know, what the results are going to be like how quickly they're going to come how how well they stick around because even though you know anything that's evergreen doesn't necessarily stay yeah. kind of actually forever yeah yeah and that, that's really fascinating how do you think in terms of supposing you had a fairly straightforward thing like that somebody says it's going to cost us five hundred thousand dollars its payback period will be x what's a good range of x what would you consider
1: i would consider spending that if it's going to create meaningful amount of demand on like if it's like you get like a three to four return on your spend Like we, it's basically like, you know, opportunity cost of like, I could spend it here or I can spend it elsewhere. Where do I get the best return on that investment?
0: Yep. Kind of comparative
1: ROI. Yeah. So it's comparative. Like, and because we've done so much, like we do all the things and we've done so many things, we just have enough data to be able to like compare that against what are other ways that we could spend that money. We definitely do do things that are, you know, more moonshot. Like we will take chances. We will take bets. One of the things that happens actually when you have a lot of success in a company is you generate such an, a huge amount of demand that anything you do has to be pretty meaningful for it to make any kind of impact <laughs> on your numbers. And that's yep. actually, it sounds like that's like, oh, well, that's a really great place to be in. It's actually not that of a cool place to be in at times because you're like, you can do this thing and it's a really good thing to do. And it creates like usually like a, a meaningful amount of demand for most companies. But for us, it just doesn't move the needle at all. Yeah. And so what happens is, you know, there's probably a really great chart you can draw, which is like the larger you get, the riskier your bets actually have to be because you will have less historical context that they're going to work because they're usually more outside of the things that usually you know will work, right? Because they have to be so meaningful that they're going to be like riskier, less historical context. You haven't really done them before. So it's harder to know what the true results are going to be. And that's definitely like something that we started to like notice and try to not struggle with, but actually one of the things we've had to kind of start to deal with
0: I can imagine, yeah. It's that uh, if there were another channel that was both highly likely to work, highly likely to be cost-effective, and scales to the point where it would make a meaningful dent in HubSpot's overall numbers, you think you probably have thought of that channel already. Yeah, right, like yeah. <laughs> so, we're
1: constantly, like, you know, we've, we've really tried to double down and make YouTube work. Mm-hmm. We're constantly trying to find any ways, like we built products, we, we built a WordPress plugin that generated a ton of demand to yeah. like, pull people in from WordPress and activate them on our freemium product and upgrade them. We've kind of like really thought about things that usually aren't in the kind of B2B playbook. And I think that's like one of the things you just have to like stretch in terms of how you can keep growing demand for the company.
0: Yeah. The flip side, I guess, of that is I always have looked from the outside with fascination at how late in HubSpot's journey, you were still, I think, getting huge value from some of things like you know, Darmesh's website grader, you know, what was, as I understand, pretty much a side project, right? Like a a little thing Darmesh was like, I'm going to do this. And you wouldn't expect what started as a weekend project from the CTO to be actually a major lead gen tool for, as I understand it, many years, right?
1: Yeah, it's really the like building assets. If you really solve a problem and build assets, those things have real stand power. And so we've built a bunch of other kind of tools that have worked really well. But yeah, those building assets, they have real state yeah. power if you can actually get them right. They kind of pay for themselves, you know, and more.
0: That return is just, yeah, just incredible when you, when you see it compound over that amount of time. So as we just kind of come towards the end of the, of the conversation, I wanted to ask you a few bits about learning and inspiration and specifically where you get that from. So what do you listen to? What do you watch? What do you read? Where do you get your inspiration and your learning from?
1: So I have definitely noticed that there's a certain point where you get it from talking to other people and i've started to notice this which is like these kind of small niche communities you can get into so like reforge is this really great growth institution and i've lectured there and so i'm in a group with the rest of the lecturers and Mm -hmm. that's a phenomenal group and like just getting to know people and being able to like go back and forth on twitter on problems with people in terms of reading things it kind of changes depending upon what i'm trying to learn so like there's some good news that there's I like crypto, so I like Milk Road, which is by Sean, who has a podcast on the My First Million. I like Lenny's newsletter that most people know if you're in product-led growth. Mm -hmm. And I love Category Pirates, Christopher Lockhead, who's coming on soon on our podcast. And so their stuff is really phenomenal. In terms of Twitter, I don't know. Twitter is one of those things. You kind of follow people, but I'm not sure. Like, I just get value- I'm not really always aware where I'm getting the value. I'm just getting the value from the people I follow. Like I can't really name accounts. Yeah. Like all this account you have to follow versus like just trying to create a really good feed for yourself. And then in terms of books, read a lot actually on positioning and -hmm. storytelling. Like they're the things that I really think are important. I think I can always get better in those things. But yeah, like reading stuff on how you can shape a point of view, how you can tell a really good story, like those kind of things. But yeah, I don't know I've like I have so many different probably the same as everyone. I have so many kind of different newsletters Definitely. <laughs> so on the podcast I listen to um what is it the open view Blake's podcast, which is kind of build better I can't remember actually what actually was called, but it's open views podcast my first million podcast, how I built this podcast mm. there's a whole collection of things I love the cartoon avatars for Logan uh, yep. I love that podcast yeah, so and then the all in I love the all in guys so. They're some of the ones that I listen to.
0: Fascinating. The the one that you you mentioned that I'm actually not familiar with is Category Parts. Tell me a bit more about those folks.
1: Yeah, so they have a book called Play Bigger and it actually breaks down. They've kind of built a category around category design, which is basically Mm. instead of playing in the same category as everyone else and being like the number two to three company, they have a really good data point that 74% of all revenue within a category goes to the category leader. And so if you're like two, three or four within that category, it's hard to build a meaningful business. And so Mm -hmm. it's really how do you think about separating yourself and creating your own category in business you can either create a differentiated business or a better match business and their argument is it's much better if you can create a differentiated business and kind of play in your own little sandbox now you know like every book has things you can agree or disagree with i agree a lot in the sentiment but i do think there's better match businesses that are incredible businesses i think it's a really great book they have and they have a really great newsletter and they have another book called snow leopard which is like as a content creator how you can create your own category. And I think that's another one that I've started to read as well. And then actually, there's a really good book that I've got. Matt actually recommended to me. I forgot the name on Angel Investing because I do a bunch of Angel Investing. So I've tried to get better at like how to think about that.
0: Yeah, that craft and psychology as well. I'm definitely going to check out those books, Play Bigger and Snow Leopard. But I think I'm with you. I can kind of see, like you said, some better mousetrap businesses that can definitely work. It feels like in any of those cases, there's a powerful add-on if you can also stand out, differentiate, position yourself so that you're the only or at least the first in that space. Actually, I think HubSpot kind of did that, right? You know, Hub- HubSpot yeah. didn't invent the CRM category, and yet, through all of the inbound positioning, did create a thing that they could be the one for, I suppose.
1: Yeah, it was a transformational story. I think category creation is a transformational story. It's like, you know, how is the world changing? How are you facilitating that change? And how does that benefit your customers? I think the interesting thing to debate on category creation, which is what I want to debate with Christopher when he comes on is let's take Airbnb, right? Like they're a new category in terms of business model, yep. but they're not a new category in terms of like travel, like their hotel mm-hmm. accommodation, right? It depends how you think about categories. So vacation accommodation has existed for a long time. And so did they re that category? Now maybe they did because it's not vacation accommodation. It's kind of moved into like other people's houses? Or is it the business model around that? They created a marketplace that allowed everyone turn their house into like vacation accommodation. So I think that's an interesting debate. Is like, is it an augmented version of a category? Can it be a new business model wrapped around an existing category? Like that to me is like super interesting on how you think about what is and isn't a new category.
0: Yeah. And even to some extent, what is, I say, just positioning? I don't want to downplay Positioning might be the biggest thing. But there's something really fascinating, I think about that whole group of kind of peer to peer type businesses. So whether it's Airbnb or whether it's Uber or whatever, where they told that story of democratization and Airbnb literally started as airbeds on on, on someone's floor. And yet, I think at their peak growth period or the time when everybody was getting to know them, my experience at least was an awful lot of the inventory on there was professional rental owners. Yeah. So I would travel to Seattle a lot, I would often stay in an Airbnb. And the whole building oftentimes was owned by a management company. Yeah. And it became a, a channel essentially for organizations or entities that had existed prior to Airbnb.
1: Yeah, like a distribution channel. Yeah. yeah.
0: And yet you're still telling that story that you're staying in somebody's spare room when you're staying literally on the floor in some cases. So, yeah, I find that kind of thing fascinating as well. Not to downplay it, almost the opposite. I think I think the story is huge and is is a really fascinating thing to think about how we can all apply that to our own work and our own businesses.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: I also liked what you were saying about a lot of learning as you get more experience, more senior in your career, it comes from conversations, it comes from the people that you get to meet. And actually, selfishly, part of my reason for doing this podcast is getting to invite people on who I want to pick the brains of and this would be a bit intense if we were just yeah, having yeah. a conversation yeah, yeah. over jam, a coffee, yeah, yeah. Right? Where, where yeah, right? yeah. yeah. so who do you report yeah, to yeah, and yeah, what yeah, they yeah,
1: like? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to start interviewing you. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: And so I get to really quiz you and selfishly, that's what I'm doing partly. And I also think it hopefully works in the medium because my experience of listening to podcasts has been that it's quite an intimate form of media really, isn't it? You kind of feel like you get to know the people who are talking. And I often listen to it on the dog walk or when I'm cooking or I'm doing chores or something like that. And so you're, you're kind of inviting people into that moment in your life as well. So I'm just hoping that bit of vulnerability kind of
1: comes through. Yeah, I agree.
0: I know you're a podcaster, so hopefully you yeah. experience
1: that as well. I think people are much more engaged when they're listening to podcasts, to your point, because they choose to listen to a podcast when they have time to like focus on it. Mm. Whereas a lot of mediums, maybe you're multitasking. The other cool thing about podcasts, I always kind of talk about this, which is, I know you've spoken at, uh, lots and lots of conferences, right? And there's probably a version of the stories you tell or the things you tell at conference that are like very specific for like, I always call like there's a conference version of a story and then there's the real story, <laughs> right? So like when I'm going around conferences and I was doing a lot of talking for, you know, how we built the product-led growth, go to market yeah, and there was the conference story, but it, like it filtered out all of the things that actually went wrong and all of the crazy stuff that happened when you're trying to do that. And so a podcast kind of gives you more of a freewheeling way to like, talk about the kind of behind the scenes and the reality of things. And that's what I really like about it as well, is like, you can kind of be a little bit more honest, you can really tell, you know, get into the details on things. And really, it's in that nuance and the details that you discover things that are really kind of, I think, incredibly valuable.
0: Yeah. And that's why one of the things that I want to keep trying to do is, is get to the concrete. And that's why I was kind of pushing on some of those actual stories, because I love hearing what actually went on in those rooms. And you know, some of those are going to stick with me particularly the story i think of the death march presentation yeah
1: definitely yeah uh, yeah. sounds
0: like that's internally famous at hubspot yeah yeah, yeah. so uh someone else (laughs) who knows about it now
1: yeah and at the time i was like this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me but i think one of the things i've always done a good job of is like seeing the comedy and everything so uh (laughs) gotta stay with me now
0: (laughs) definitely listen kieran it's been really fun talking to you today thank you for making the time really appreciate the honesty and the openness and the stories
1: yeah and thanks for having on i I will say that when i was building my search career way early back in the day distilled was the place that i went to learn everything i always loved reading everything that that was on your site. so i appreciate all of the things you guys did for the industry
0: goes full circle right yeah take care cool thank you for listening today if you have any questions about anything we discuss on the podcast, drop me a line by email at podcast at searchpilot.com. or get in touch on Twitter, where I'm at Will Critchlow. This podcast is the Business Class Lounge from Searchpilot. Searchpilot helps large websites prove the value of SEO by making SEO tests easier, faster, and more accurate. You can find out more about Searchpilot at searchpilot.com. Today's podcast was produced by Mark Cotton and hosted by me, Will Critchlow. If you enjoyed the conversation, please recommend it to a friend i mm-hmm. you.